Last week, I started off, I gave a summary of the book of Esther, uh, mentioned a few highlights, and some of the highlights that we mentioned were, this is a really subversive piece of history. One of the important things that you have to do during this series is to read the book of Esther. It's a story that you can actually read in one sitting. It's not written like most uh, books in the Bible where they're written in didactic uh, fashion, where there are pieces of teaching and doctrine that you can pick out. It's just one big story. So it's really important that you would read so that by the time we come, you're not trying to figure out where is the story, where is this coming from, and where is it going. So please read. It's a, it's a, it's a story you can actually read in one sitting. But we said, I said last week that Esther is one of the two books in the Bible that does not mention the name of God at all. So people throughout church history didn't know what to do with it, right? Martin Luther, who's one of the reformers, uh, said this book is too naughty and has too much illicit content to be considered into the canon, right? Look at us, the, the parents of small babies, how comfortable we are with that cry. Eh? <laughs> I can see other boys like, oh, baby crying. It's absolutely fi fine. No need to worry. One of the books that doesn't, no reference to God, no reference to religion, no reference to anything. The only thing that's there is a time of fasting and prayer that is called out. One of the only two books in the Bible that is named after a woman, Esther, and Ruth, and the two books that do not mention God, is Songs of Solomon and the book of Esther. And on that Songs of Solomon note, Happy Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> and I mentioned last week that most people, we want to sanitize the history in the Bible and what happens this. And I say this book is much more a Game of Thrones than it is Frozen. Because we want to Disneyfy it, let it go, let it go, and then Esther is coming out, and this little pretty princess. That's not what's happening in this book. It's power, sex, violence, and like savagery you've never seen ever. But it is important. I know the temptation I've thought as a parent, like how do I navigate with my child through scriptures like that. Because the temptation is to want to insulate and say, you know, uh, and just make sure that I, I cherry pick. But how do I teach these things? Hence why I recommended that book last week, the Jesus Storybook, on how everything points to Jesus Christ. How do we in age-specific, uh, sensitive uh, ways open these truths in the scriptures to our children so that they can see how glorious the gospel is and also how totally depraved the world is. We, both need to, we all need to protect, but we all need to prepare because the challenge is when they grow up and they begin to hear and to see these things and yet we just gave them a Disney version of the Bible they begin to be disillusioned on where does God, where is God in all this? Where does God sit in the middle of all this darkness, in the middle of 
in, in this dark history that humanity has, where does God sit in light of slavery? Where does God sit in light of all the genocides that have occurred? Brothers and sisters, we must not hesitate. We must not hold back because of how glorious the gospel is. Because of what we have in the gospel is so glorious. Nothing understands, explains, and predicts the world more than the word of God does. So we gave that summary of the book of Esther. But today I want to share, I want to highlight two verses from chapter 4 which is the most famous. So here what, here's what happens. You know how when a movie starts, it starts either with a fighting scene, right, or something happening, like a sin, and then it moves to two weeks before or five years before. I want to do that with this, with this book of Esther. So imagine you're starting a series, boom, watching a movie, and then when Mordecai had learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes so it's just starting with a guy doing a Hulk Hogan. Like, and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out in the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. So that's one sin, right? This is going in the city and people are fasting and praying. And they told, verse 12, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that, uh, that in the king's palace you escape any more than all other Jews. For if you keep silent, at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So sin one, guy is tearing off his clothes. Sin two, stalking is giving a message like, let them know, let, uh, let Esther know that she came into the kingdom for such a time as this. I want to take you back to moments before this happened and see the character and the plot, right? And then hear the point of all that Scripture is trying to say in that particular moment throughout history and to this moment in your life. I want us to go through the characters that are involved up to this moment. Here's the cast. The first cast is a king, powerful but impressionable king, right? At this point, he divorces his wife. What had happened? Sitting with his friends, he's drinking with his friends, he's drunk. And we're going to mention a little bit about his foolishness, right? He's drunk and he asks his wife to come and catwalk among his friends, right? And then at the advice of Haman, uh, he condemns the Jews to, to death, right? He puts an edict and says, here's what's going to happen. We need to exterminate all the Jewish people around. So that's on the cast character number one. Second character, 
Haman is an enemy of the Jews, an official in the Persian court, right? He's using influence, he's condemning, he's the one who's behind, he's like the general and the right-hand person of the king. And this is the person who has a fallout with Mordecai, who gives an edict, and Mordecai disobeys what he had said. Second character. Let's go, third character. It's Mordecai, Esther's cousin and guardian, right? He influences Esther in that passage that we've read. So Esther is there with an uncle who's called Mordecai, and he's another character in that whole play. He's the one who starts on the scene, who's tearing off his clothes after it had been mentioned that the Jews should be taken out. And after that, Esther herself, right? The Bible actually says, this is in the Bible, this is not my word, it says she was beautiful in figure. And she was beautiful to look at, right? I don't know by what, what standards, right? Right? And then she's involved. So this has happened, the king has divorced his wife, because the wife has refused to come and model in front of his friends and be paraded, right? And then what happens? The king then goes uh, three years lapse uh, through, uh, before he comes to say, young man. The Bible actually says he came to some young man and said, what should I do? And this young man came up with the idea that you should have the bachelor, but if, like a female version. And there was a harem there where they kept women. And this, I, I think they were teenagers or young adults because the Bible says it was just a bunch of young men who came up with this idea. It says, let's parade women across the city and then you will choose one that you like. And she also becomes the hero. So she's chosen by the king uh, when that happens, and then she becomes the hero in this story. So how the story ends is Esther then confronts the king after a king has made a decision that could not be reversed. But she goes up and says, listen, you cannot do this. So she becomes the savior and the hero. Let's, 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 uh, let's move on. Let, let's move on to the next slide. So here's what's happening, right? First is the king. We want to look at the king. The first thing is, it doesn't matter how corrupt the powers that govern this world can become. God is always sovereign. God's will eventually happened. But there was an evil king who was in power. That means us God's people should not surrender by virtue of which president is on the throne. You cannot live in anxiety that if Raila becomes president or Ruto, this country is going to the dogs. You cannot say that or think like that as a believer. Because regardless of who is going to become president in this country, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. And that's the first thing that it's being shown like there's a king who's arbitrary rule, who's flippant, right? Who just makes decisions. He's putting, he's an evil ruler. The way he's treating women in that time, the way he's using wealth in that time. Even when you read throughout church history, when he talks about the taxation that was in that place during that time and the slavery, 
But that did not thwart God's plan. I like what John Newton says. He says, I have one political maxim. And his one political maxim is, the Lord reigns. <laughs> that the Lord reigns. That's the first thing we learn from this king. That no king, no president has been put in place. Here's what I say every year in this church when the election results are announced. I say the people here whose preferred candidate has been defeated, you are allowed to wail. But do not wail too much because Jesus did not run in this election and he did not lose this election. And to those whose preferred candidate would have won, I say do not rejoice too much for Jesus did not run this election and he did not win this election. <laughs> Either way, that's not what we look at. Yes, we should exercise wisdom. Yes, we should think. Yes, we should discern people who are closer to godly character. But in the event that that does not happen, on the event someone that you consider to be of godly character to be on the, or in, in, in leadership, our eyes should still be set on God. The second thing we learn there is that by his perfect providence, which is tied to that, our, our king, who is God, guides the hearts of lesser kings like streams of waters. God guides lesser kings. A drunkard, no pagan, no fear of God at all. That should give us hope to actually pray for those who are in leadership. Because the Bible says that, that the hearts of kings are in the hands of God. And he channels them like streams, of, like, like, like streams. And he decides where their hearts could go. He did that with Pharaoh. And he can do that with leaders today. Not just political leadership. Even at your workplace. Even in your home. Wherever you have a leadership structure. God guides lesser kings. Instead of just complaining about our bosses. Instead of just complaining about our leadership. And how, you know, you know how guys like, man, I'm leaving Kenya. It's hopeless. You know, not with these politicians. Like, could we? At least the Bible gives us permission to complain, right? I'm so glad. <laughs> There's a whole book of complaints called Lamentations. <laughs> Psalm 13, Psalm 42, Psalm 43, Psalm 88. The psalmist comes like, ah, oh God, why are all these wicked people? Why do they have more money than I do? Lord, how long shall these people be in leadership? Oh, God, I hate them. And then next time it's like, oh, I'm sorry, Jesus. <laughs> Like the Bible gives us permission to come before him like that. But we're a people of hope. We know that Jesus is the king of kings. And every king, every king, God has access to their hearts. God has access to Uhuru Kenyatta's heart. God has access to Putin's heart. God has access to Joe Biden. God had access to Robert Mugabe. I'm not sure, but... <laughs> Man, <laughs> he had. <laughs> he had. <laughs> he had. Did I believe it? Sometimes. 
Does the Bible say it is true? Yes, it is. So you and I ought to believe it, ought to rehearse and recite that to our minds and to our hearts, that God has access to all forms of leadership, of rule, or anyone who's exercising, exercising any responsibility. God, through his providence, is ruling. Another thing that we learn from this guy, from this character, is that moments of foolish passion can alter your life forever. <laughs> this guy's drunk. And this book shows how much this guy loved wine. Because all his decisions were, he was merry with wine. <laughs> he had been drinking wine. And I was reading a historian who was saying that in chapter 1 it says, he requested his wife to come wearing a crown. History says that's all he asked her to come wearing, just a crown. So when you hear it, it's not just a woman who's moody and saying, no, I'm not listening to my husband. It's like, because it was an abomination to do that to your wife. It says, let her come wearing a crown so that people see and objectify. Moment of foolishness. And what was leading to his foolishness, number one, right, is the abuse of wine, which is a warning for us today. <laughs> that wine and alcohol can lead to that. Where you make decisions of foolishness that will impact you for the rest of your life. Do not be foolish. And none of his friends even tried to stop him. The Bible says, he who walks with the wise becomes wise, but a friend of fools will suffer harm. This is what it means for young people here. The times when you're like, you know what, my friends are not Christians, you know, they're wild and out, I can be friends with them, and I can be there and not participate in what they're doing. You suffer harm. You suffer because of their foolish decisions, not of your own foolishness. Because someone will drive while they're drunk, Someone will steal, someone will do something, and it will harm you. That's what the Bible means. This king is abusing alcohol. This king is around the company of other kings and other people who are foolish, who is openly violating a, a principle and a law. Next thing we learn from this is the providence of God does not relieve us of our human responsibility. It doesn't call for inactivity. It calls us for activity. The fact that God, the hearts of kings, are in the hands of God, it does not mean that you should not vote. It does not mean you should not hold leadership accountable. It does not mean you should not participate in trying to correct injustices. It does not mean that you should not participate in making this world a better place. We don't become inactive, right? Because God uses our actions. This is what he said to Moses. He says, I've come down to deliver my people. That's what he says when he met Moses. You know what he said after? He said, but I'm sending you to do it. I've personally come down to deliver my people. He'd have said, oh God, so you just do it, right? I'm just going to watch. I'm going to sit back and enjoy 
you figuring out how to deliver your people. But it says, I've come down to deliver my people, but I've sent you. I'm sending you. Even though God works through his providence, that he caused Esther to be at the right place at the right time, he, caused, he allowed the divorce of the wife to happen, and all that is for the coming of Christ, is the flourishing of, of God's people. He's working providentially, right? His hand, the unseen God, his invisible hand, his fingerprint is working towards the good of his people. So you and I, we have to participate. We cannot give up. You know why we shouldn't give up? Because history is rigged towards the victory of God. Right? Because our story, it starts from victory. Right? It starts from Zion. It starts from Revelation 21. We know that God is going to put every king under his feet. We know how the church has survived through all generations. History is rigged even for your own life. Even in this moment where people are like, man, the faith is going to, is, is, is going to be in extinction after God's people have been taken out. But God is working through. But here's a, better, here's a thing that we learn. The biggest point about this king that we learn is that Jesus is a greater king. Jesus is a greater king. In history, here's one historical document that's written about what this king said about himself, right? He said, I'm the great king. The only king, the king of all countries, which speaks all kinds of languages. The king of this entire big and far-reaching earth. This king thought he was Jesus. This king thought his agendas would rule, would rule throughout the earth. Unfortunately, some of us we're treating objects and other people like kings in our lives. There are people we obey more than the Lord. There are people we worship more than the Lord. There are people and things we follow. There are people we adore like they are Jesus. Let me tell you, Jesus is a better king. Jesus is a better everything. Jesus is a greater everything. That is the point of all the things that God has given us, all the blessings that God has given to us, the point is, everything you have, it's, supposed, it's a foreshadow of Jesus. It's supposed to make you think, hmm, Jesus is greater. C.S. Lewis talks about this, right? Is that the abolition of man? When he talks about the sun and the sun rays, that the sun is God. The sun rays are created things. They're supposed to lead you to God. So every good gift comes from the Father, but it's, supposed, it's a foretaste of what it means to be with God. When you sit down and eat a good meal, a good steak, nice, well done, <laughs> wag your beef or some other steak, and you're like, yo, this is a mean steak. It's a foretaste of what it will mean to be with Jesus. Uh -oh. When you look at your spouse and you're like, yo, <laughs> Look at me. It's a foretaste. When you listen to a good song, that's why we don't have the greatest love song of all time. 
We think, oh, no, 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 it was, it was Luther Vandross. No, 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 it was Frank Sinatra. No, it was Dean Martin. No, it was John Legend. Because we are, it's all a foretaste. When you hear that love song, it's actually giving you a foretaste of what it will mean to be with the greatest lover of all time. Every pleasure was supposed to be a foretaste, but what do we do? We take the created thing and we replace it. We forget about the sun. So we do that. We make things king. But Jesus is a greater king. We do that in marriage, right? We expect our, our, our spouses to supply what only Christ can supply because we're actually shopping for Jesus, but in a person. But Jesus is the greater spouse. <laughs> Jesus is, is the greater spouse. And that's why we are both called to be like Jesus onto one another. Right? We're called to be like Jesus to one another. It's not just the husband. Even the wife. Called to be like Jesus to one another. That's why we submit one unto another. Okay, on a Valentine note. <laughs> one of the greatest ways to improve the Christian orientation of your marriage is not to try to be a good husband or good wife. Try to be a good Christian to one another. <laughs> try to be a good Christian. <laughs> that's, actually, that's actually, we think the Bible only talks about marriage in those few verses, right? So like, ah, if you don't read Ephesians 5, if you don't read Colossians and Matthew, there's nothing. The rest we get from the red table, from Jada, <laughs> right? Because we think the Bible doesn't have content. No, everything is about marriage. The fruits of the Spirit is about marriage. You should be Christians to one, good Christians to one another. What do Christians do? They submit long-suffering. They consider one above the other. Try being good Christians to one another. Off the Valentine notes. Back to the Bible. <laughs> Jesus is a better king. This king was son of Darius, but Jesus is the son of God. This king never tasted poverty nor humility, but Jesus tasted both poverty and humility to identify with us. This king used his power to abuse women, but Jesus used his power to honor women. This king spent his life being served. Jesus spent his entire life serving others. This king killed his enemies. Jesus died for his enemies. This king sat on a throne in Susa, but Jesus sits on a throne in heaven. This was a most powerful man on earth, but Jesus made the heavens and earth that this guy thought he was the most powerful place in. He was a tenant in this guy's backyard. Jesus is a greater king. Jesus is the greater king. That's the point. Second thing, and I'll stop there. My time is up. It's 11.30. Can I have five minutes of your time? Is that okay? The next thing we learn. <laughs> is that the world is a broken place. The world is a broken place. So minded on what's happening there. How, how women are being treated. How other ethnic groups are being treated. That's, that's not new. The world is broken and people are broken, right? 
The problem with the world is not man or women. The problem is sin. The problem is the world is giving you a false dichotomy, right? Where people think, well, only white people can be racist. That's a false narrative the world is creating. It's like only white people can be racist. No one can be racist. Only men can be sexist. No other gender can be sexist. So you're giving this category and designing this, uh, this sin is only unique to these people. That's a lie from the enemy. That's a lie from the enemy. All sin is a sin of pride, is a sin against God. All men have sinned, right? You can't say, you can't put a dichotomy and say, the problem with race is between these ethnic groups. Because even if we leave you alone with your Kikuyu relatives, I can say that because my wife is Kikuyu. <laughs> if we leave you with your Kikuyu relatives, you start dividing each other around who's educated, who's not, who's got money, who's not. The division, it doesn't stop. Even if you're people from one ethnic group, you start like, oh, all right, even on your own, you start thinking, oh, who's light-skinned, who's dark-skinned, who's this, who's... Humanity will always find ways to divide. Sin is not unique. It's all have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. So you've got to understand that in your mind. And as a Christian, you cannot be part of those theories and of those narratives. Because the Bible points to us in Romans chapter 5 that through one man, sin entered the, the world. But also through one man, we were redeemed from the curse of sin. This world is a broken place. And people are fallen. Some of us want the world. We want what, will be found in, what can only be found in the next world in this world. We put so much investment in this world. My basic example I'm always giving is, if I owned a bank, right, called TC Bank, <laughs> and I told you, like, hey, bro, listen, don't put money in this bank. It's going down. Would you put money in that account? But Jesus said it to you, like, do not invest your treasures on earth. They're going down. <laughs> but you do it. <laughs> The owner of the earth, you've been given an inside trade. He's like, don't do it. <laughs> it's going down. There's no value. Put your money here in heaven <laughs> where moth and thing cannot eat. So what makes it dif difficult? <laughs> because the owner, the proprietor of the planet has told you. Because this world is broken, right? But here's what we usually do. Two extremes. One, we become passive. There are people like, it's too fallen. People are too fallen, so I won't do anything about it, right? There's another extreme of people who think they can actually make this world a better place. You can hear from their presentations, like, you know, we're going to change the world. Change the world. Let's change the world. So you have this two extremes. But here's where we need to premise our efforts to making this world a better place. This is the place we premise. Jesus has a greater kingdom. <laughs> that you and I, we exist under the superintendence of God. This is why Goshen 
when all the plagues were falling and the judgment was falling on people, but where God's people were, there was renewal, there was light, there was revival there. That you and I, what we bring on earth as we mitigate the effects of Genesis chapter 3 is because we exist in the kingdom of God. Because you and I, first of all, as uh, Corinthians says, our outer are wasting away. But we are daily being renewed from the outside. Because this is the kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. God's kingdom is greater, is safer, is better. That means that you need to migrate. Your primary responsibility, your primary identity is not the country of your passport. Or it's not your geolocation. But it's the fact that you exist in the kingdom of God. Where God is, where his rule is, where his love is, where his enablement is. Jesus' kingdom is greater than any kingdom on earth. Any kingdom, any empire that's currently existing, Jesus' kingdom is greater. Lastly, I want to stop with Esther. Skip, skip, I want to go to Esther. Skip, skip, Haman, I want to finish with Esther. There comes Esther, right? Here's what for such a time as this, when Mordecai says this to her. Number one, this is what Mordecai is saying and saying to us, that the need around you is urgent. The need around you is urgent. It's possible because she's living in the palace, right? And Mordecai just calls her out and just like, I know you're living in the palace where you don't have these problems. Listen. The need in this country is urgent. It's easier for us. We're here, we're in Karen, and the affluence in which we exist in, to think the rest of this country is like this. Do you know that Kenya is number four in Africa in terms of having extreme poverty? It doesn't have a lot of people in poverty, but those who are in poverty, they are in the doldrums. They're an abject Poverty, one of the worst in the world, is found in this country. There's urgency. And this church, God has not placed us just to do a middle-class Christianity where we're just meeting at the club, where we're just meeting uh, in Diani, or where we're meeting in Portugal and doing trips. That's well and good with thank God, but there's an urgent need around us, and God has not blessed us just to come and sit and just be consumers. God has called us for such a time as this with all the realities that are there in this country. God has called you and I for such a time as this. The need around us is urgent. The sex trafficking in this country, it's staggering. We cannot do this gated community Christianity. You know, people love to live in gated communities because they're not just buying the house, right? You're also buying the neighbor. Like, I know he's not going to rob me and he's not going to steal from me. 
right? Because that's real estate location. And it's like, yeah, I'm not just buying this, I'm buying the neighbor, right? So that's the Christianity that we will be tempted, like this gated community type of Christianity that I just want to be comfortable, I need to trust my neighbor, but I'm not going to step out of this bubble that I've created. Both spiritual needs and material needs, it's urgent. The opportunity you have is momentous. It's momentous. Listen, you and I, you shouldn't treat history like a pond. History is a river, especially church history. It's not a pond like, oh, this is what's happening is unique to us and we're confined to this. There are generations that are waiting for us to make footprints for God. Your kids are watching what a life that's given to God looks like. Neighbors are watching. This is not just for you. What's going to be written? If a Bible is going to be written, let's say, there's no other Bible that's going to be written, this is it. But if there's another one, what would this say about our time and how we use this opportunity? Would they say we're persecuted? By slow internet from Zuku. <laughs> if anyone's from Zuku, I'm sorry. <laughs> God help you. Since they complained about slow internet, it affected us sharing the gospel. We, com- we complain about a certain airline. Is that what our persecution is? Slow internet? Is that what our persecution is? Is that the footprint we're leaving for gospel carriage and people who lived for what matters the most and, and they didn't love their lives up until death? It's momentous because we're leaving a legacy of faith. We're leaving footprint for generations to come. But in closing, Jesus is a greater savior. <laughs> Esther is a savior, but Jesus is a greater savior. Right? Just like Esther comes from a line of God's covenant people, right? Jesus grew up far away from home, just like Esther, right? Jesus grew up in a sinful world, filled with temptation to compromise, just like Esther. People didn't see him as God the same way Esther's identity was compromised. Just like Esther, Jesus grew up in humble circumstances. But the difference is that Jesus is a greater savior. Just, didn't, just doesn't save us from physical harm, but saves us from the worst thing that could ever happen to us. You know what the worst thing that could happen to you is? Here's the thing. Your material success is not the best thing that could happen to you. Your poverty is not the worst thing that could ever happen to you. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is being God's enemy. Because when you're outside of salvation, you're an enemy of God. Because we're saved by God from God. It says Jesus demonstrated his love towards us. That while we were yet sinners... Jesus died for us. 
Where do you get the courage to exist as an enemy of the creator and the sustainer of the universe? You are afraid of being an enemy of Uhuru Kenyatta or even the OCS in your neighborhood. What more? God of the universe. You're afraid of just being the enemy of your boss, a created person? Where do you get the courage? Where do you get the courage to exist as an enemy of God? That God has nothing. You know what, like, have you ever unfriended someone on Facebook? You unfriend them. It's just like, are you sure you want to unfriend this person? You're like, oh, I didn't think it was a moral issue. And then you say yes, it says, this means you'll not be able to see this person's activity and what they post, etc., etc., right? That's exactly what you're doing. You're unfriending God and you're saying, God, you won't see my life. You won't cover me. You won't care about my activity. I'm unfriending and eclipsing you out of my life. But Jesus came as a greater savior to those who mocked him, to those who denied them, and to those who have lived a life of ignorance. It does not matter how many, you could be a million steps away from the Lord, but it only takes one step to make it right, which is placing your faith in Christ Jesus, the greater Savior. Created things cannot save you. People cannot save you. Money cannot save. Nothing is designed to save you in this world. Only Jesus the greater Savior. Would we please stand up? Two people want to pray for and then we'll be dismissed. One, this book, because it does not mention God, it's describing how people lived when they felt that God was absent. <laughs> are, you temp are you tempted that way as well? When you feel like God is not coming through? You're now tempted to abandon his principles, his law, and his book until he has done something in your life? Are you tempted that way? Because God feels absent. But I want to remind you that God is ever-present. And sometimes, right, sometimes we're tempted, we, are, we, are, we can get addicted to the spectacular, right? God is working. We want to see miracles, we want signs of God is working providentially. Everything, that, every tiny little detail whether the doors that he has opened or closed in your life, that's God. Some of you, God has called you, but you're waiting for something spectacular to happen. Like you want an angel to come and knock on you and say, my son, go and feed the hungry. Go and serve in church. That's what I like about Nehemiah. There's no vision there. There's no angel. There's nothing. <laughs> wakes up, looks at the state, People's heart is broken and he moves and he obeys the Lord. Because that's, that's God working providentially, putting those feelings and putting them in the heart of that situation.
And lastly, would you? Why did God allow the fallenness, the brokenness to happen? So that he would be glorified. So that we'll see his love, his grace, and his mercy. Most of us wish like, you know, sin hadn't entered, that we lived a life that looked like that tract in Jehovah's Witness where we're walking with tigers and hyenas. No, you wouldn't have known how loving, how merciful, how powerful, how gracious, how much he's a servant if this brokenness had not come into the world or if it had not happened in your life. Everything that has happened in your life is for you to see God glorified. It's to see God glorified. Lord, I'm not fluent enough to explain and to articulate how glorious the gospel is. That throughout history, all that has happened was a longing for a savior. Lord, help us, oh God. Open our eyes to the glories of God, to the doctrines of grace, of how marvelous, of how wonderful God is in the middle of a broken history, a broken world. Thank you that you sent your son as a greater savior. Thank you you saved us into a greater kingdom. Thank you that you're a greater king. Thank you that you've given us a greater purpose. Because Lord, you're greater. That's what this book shouts. That Jesus is greater. That Jesus is greater. Greater than our circumstances. Greater than our problems. Greater than our challenges. You're above it all. You're greater. You're greater. And I pray, oh God, for those who have not surrendered their hearts to you, that, oh God, you draw them to yourself. In your son's name we pray, and all of God's people said, amen. Because I've taken much time, I'm going to dismiss this with the words of, of Jude. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And all of God's people said, Amen.